So I heard that the Seattle Design Festival is coming up. And when I first heard that there was a Seattle Design Festival, I pictured a bunch of super designy architects with crazy haircuts and trendy shirts all sitting in a circle and saying super complicated, meaningless design words. And then like saying ohm for 30 minutes. And like, <laughs> my first impulse was just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be just like school. This is all what I wanted to avoid. But then I looked into it a little more and learning about it, it's so much more inclusive and there's none of that crazy double speak it's just really accessible we like when we started this podcast one of the biggest hurdles we had was people don't generally sit around and talk about design who aren't already designers <laughs> it just seems like nobody does they just they're either intimidated by it or what is out there is written by designers for designers and when i first heard about the festival i just thought it was really cool that at least for a week or two it's open to everyone and it's very inclusive you don't have to wear all black and wear architect glasses to no, attend. No, you do not. You do not. Uh, maybe you'll get like a special pass. <laughs> That's like the fast pass. It's like if you wear all black and you yeah. put on like four glasses, they're like, oh, sir, over here in the TSA pre-check line uh-huh. for, for a Seattle Design Festival. <laughs> and say things like meta-exegetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something that's very cool about the, the way that the Seattle Design Festival is. It's really, really inclusive. And no translation really appreciate either. that. Yes. The ninth annual Seattle Design Festival, featuring over 100 events and installations, will be held August 16th through 25th. Some of this year's featured events include a technology design discussion with Microsoft that will explore living in harmony with the things we create. That'll be on August 19th. Also, our Thriving Cities discussion with Gensler will explore how to eliminate imbalance and inequality in Seattle on August 23rd. The full schedule can be found at designinpublic.org. Yeah, <laughs> like there are a lot of different major car assumptions in the yeah. Pacific Northwest. One, you drive a Prius. So you are either an Uber driver or the slowest driver of all time. There's a Subaru, which also means you're a slow driver, but also you wait 15 seconds after a green to go. No, that depends on the type of Subaru that you have. Foresters everywhere, all day long, and Outbacks, yeah. Yeah. And um, also, I hate being behind them. I've never enjoyed driving near, in front of, or behind a Subaru. Hey, I drive a Subaru. We call our Subaru the boat because mm-hmm. it's an outback and it's kind of old now. And it, it's more like you have to you have to drive it like you're in water and you, you know, you're just going to like, you're going to like kind of curve up to the dock, <laughs> kind of like, yeah. That's so sad. <laughs> you know, it's kind of what you have to do. This is Charles. And this is Rachel. From BNV Radio. This is Design Goggles. There is nothing more inescapable in the world of architecture and design than the celebrity architect. On television and in film, famous architects, both fictional and real, swagger and lecture, point to the horizon and find themselves surrounded with adulation for their unique visions. Even though there are a few dozen celebrity architects in the world, for the rest of us, the world is a bit different. These capital A architects, as we call them, may be inspiring at times, yet can do real harm to the profession with their work and attitude. Case in point, Bjark Ingels. This Danish architect has assumed the mantle of the hottest architect in the world, both because of his work and his actual physical appearance. Surrounding Bjark is a bigger issue. His work ignores the world around him and puts spectacle and ego above all else. Perhaps not shockingly, this isn't what makes him any different than other capital A architects. 
What does make him different is that he is young, white, male, and marketable. He's on Netflix, Instagram, any social media outlet, television, film, you name it, giving everyone the impression that the profession is something it's not. Today, I'm sitting with my co-host, Rachel Scott, a designer here at Border Mellum, and we're going to break it all down. Rachel, thanks for sitting down with me today. As always, happy to be here. So this is interesting in that I'd wanted to do this podcast for a while, this particular episode, and I'd asked a couple people, architects in Seattle, to do it with me. And many people had similar views about Bjark Ingels that I did and similar concerns, but no one would do the podcast. They didn't want to be on the record. Yeah, there is a real fear in the profession about saying celebrity architects aren't okay. Mm -hmm. And it's as if we all like to complain about them, but everybody secretly wants to be them. Mm. But I personally don't feel that way. And I definitely do not. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of the people I ask might feel that way. (laughs) And so I'm going to talk a little bit more in the beginning than I usually talk on an episode, just to set up why this episode's even happening. Okay. I feel like I first encountered his work in a bookstore. He had written a book called Yes is More. It was sort of a graphic novel of architecture. And it was set up like a comic book. There were all these panels and it was Bjark Ingels pointing at architecture and talking about it in a sort of illustrative way. And on one hand, I thought it was really interesting. Here's some architect engaging with everybody in a format and way that's really understandable. Yet, here is an architect literally standing and talking about his work as the primary way you're interacting with design. And when I was in school, we were taught that, like, you failed if you need to stand next to your building or design and explain it. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't, like, angry, but I was a little conflicted. I was like, okay, this is weird. I didn't really know any of his work. I sort of suspended my disbelief. And as of late, he is now incredibly popular. He's everywhere. And I saw him on a Netflix special recently, and it was just making me so angry. I was watching with a friend. And I couldn't stand it. I had to pause. And I like yelled. I'm like, he is the Anna Kornikova of architecture. (laughs) And what I mean by that is Anna Kornikova was a professional tennis player. Mm -hmm. She was like 30 or 35th in the world. But she was on the cover of everything because she was like also a model. Mm -hmm. She didn't give tennis a bad name, but the priorities were all messed up. It was all flash and show over actual quantity and quality. To me, that's the epitome of what he stands for. I don't mean necessarily to pick on Bjark Ingels. He's just the most visible and the easiest to talk about. And he can take it. And he can take it. He's doing just fine. Didn't you tell me his office is like massive now? The uh, stats were from 2016. It was mm-hmm. so, unless things have gone poorly. And what were the stats? It was like 400 people. Wow. And it was founded in something like a decade or so before that. Mm-hmm. I remember the first bit of his design that made me really angry, like passionately angry. He was designing at the time, maybe it's built now, I don't even know, a tower near the High Line in New York City. And I feel mm-hmm. like I might have talked about this on a previous episode. I can't remember. But The High Line is this beautiful elevated park that goes all the way up the sort of lower west side of the island of Manhattan. But importantly, it wasn't like some big concept of, oh, we're going to create a park in the sky. We're going to elevate it. No, no. It was an elevated rail. Right. Exactly. It was an elevated rail that was reclaimed and repurposed as a public park. And it's become a huge generator of tourist dollars and a huge test incubator for all sorts of architects and designers and artists and actors even to come and be a part of the ecosystem that surrounds that park. And so he was hired to design a tower. 
sort of at the end of the High Line. <laughs> and so he took the connection of the tower to the High Line and he made this linear park that extended into his tower and went all the way up the tower. Except the public can't get to that park. It's only accessible to the people in the tower and it goes into the sky. Mm -hmm. And immediately I was like, that is the most Bjark Ingels thing I've ever seen. Because like every architect builds from other ideas. I'm not knocking him for that. But I'm going to take all these other ideas and monetize them and commodify them and turn it into a spectacle no one can access. That you can just see from afar. The first one of his buildings that I saw, and I was just like, this is really bad. Mm-hmm. But can you think of some other, like, name a Star Architect building that you're like, that is a really great building in terms of the human experience of it? Any civic building, any college campus building, okay. any church or religious building. I would say. Okay, but so take out those ones probably had more influence from the client. Maybe I'm a little jaded. Like, <laughs> like here we are. We're going to talk about Star Techs, and I am just. You're worse. Than I am like the worst person to. I'm you're like, like of no, 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 I'll that talk noise. about it. F but, that noise. <laughs> like, at least my perception of my exposure to a lot of it, it's probably a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because like once you get into this mindset of this is all ego-driven and not at all about the human experience of the people that actually inhabit these spaces, you can kind of get into that circle of misjudging some of the buildings. But once you start seeing a lot of that and seeing how the ego is getting in the way of the actual design in a holistic way, mm-hmm. it's easy to start using that as a like a first check on buildings from people that are at that architect level mm-hmm. and be like, well, are they terrible places to experience when you're actually in them? In any other way other than this feels monumental and cool, you know? Well, that's the spectacle thing. Yeah. If you get past the spectacle and the monument part of it, is it a space worth spending your entire day in? And if not, then like, what are you doing? Right. I mostly agree with that. Spectacle isn't inherently a bad thing, I don't think. But I think when it's literally at the cost of everything else. Yeah. And monuments aren't a bad thing either. Right. Not at all saying that we shouldn't build beautiful monument based, high minded, like, let's go capital A architecture and build some, I don't know, spill some pyramids. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do? But when it's spectacle at the cost of literally everything else, like all of Big's work, Big is the name of Bjark Ingels' firm. All of his work is literally created with the intention of getting as much attention as possible, period. Nothing else matters. Nothing. So question, is the attention that is trying to be obtained for him and the firm or is it for whoever the client is of the building? That's a good question. I mean, you'd have to ask a client. The way he presents himself and his firm to the world is that it's about getting him more attention. And getting his firm more attention (laughs) and not creating anything worth inhabiting or experiencing. And (laughs) that's not how they sell themselves. (laughs) Right. But like in an interview, they ask him like about his process and he says things that every architect does and makes it seem impossible. In an interview in one of his Netflix specials, he was talking about making models and he talked for about eight minutes. The gist of what he said was, we make a model, then we change the model and make another model. (laughs) And like, he's just talking about it as if it's impossible. And people are like, mind blown. Take billions (sighs) of my dollars. And it's just like, oh man. The reason that people fall for that is that the design world doesn't really do a good job of explaining the process. Correct. Right? No, it doesn't. We can be like, oh my God, you build a model and then you build a new one. Whoa, that's so cool. Like, wouldn't it know? Like, ugh, 
That's ridiculous. And other celebrity architects, of which there are many, and I have varying views on a bunch of them, but he's unique in the vapidness of everything he talks about. Most celebrity architects believe their own BS, but have BS. Wait, so you think he doesn't believe his own BS? He doesn't even have BS. Well, how do you mean? Like, to him, it's not. He doesn't have some idea he's talking about for 40 minutes. It's like word salad. So it's only not BS because he doesn't know what the words are? (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It's it's like you can talk for 40 minutes about how blue this color blue is, but that would be far more of substance than anything he says. (laughs) (laughs) And... Oh my God, this cracks me up. But I don't want the show to be as me just busting on how bad Bjark Ingels is for architecture. But the larger issue of we all, the rest of the architecture community has to every day pay for the sins mm-hmm. of Bjark Ingels and his contemporaries. Yes. The same things that he is rewarded for by a very small part of the world are what we are punished for every day in assumptions. Yeah. People assume that, oh, that's what all architects are like. And that they don't care about their context. They don't care about how much things cost, what the real experience of mm-hmm. architecture is, how buildings are made, how or they're sourced. Or what the point of it is. Yes. We've talked about this before when we were talking about how architects are portrayed in pop culture and in movies mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. TV shows. Many times, and we were yeah. complaining about Ted Mosby. And I think that that's kind of linked into this because to a certain degree, once you reach that level of architect, it's a gray area between pop culture and architect culture, right? Mm-hmm, to a mm-hmm. certain degree, once you reach celebrity status, it's like, well, is this a real person or is this a movie character? It's easier to blur the lines, right? Yeah. And so that perception of what an architect is in pop culture is influenced by what the architects are doing Absolutely. publicly. And I am a fan of many architects. One wouldn't think that based on everything you've said so far. It's funny. It's kind of, we were talking about cars before. Uh-huh. And part of buying a luxury car is buying a membership to a club. And luxury cars can have a beautiful design and do things in design that other cars and car companies can't do because they need to be affordable. But those cars inspire all other cars. And it's important that someone is doing that work. Inspiration is incredibly necessary for all of us. And there's nothing wrong with a client saying, you know, I have this amount of money. I want something that's really, really special and unique. And I want to be part of the club of people who were able to get Architect X to do something unique for them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of wealthy people, especially very wealthy people, believe it's their responsibility to be a benefactor of the arts and be a benefactor of those architects that can inspire the rest of us. And I feel like that's a good thing. I know that I'm being painfully optimistic. (sighs) Yeah. But Bjark Ingels and people like him cross the line. Okay, this is... (laughs) I'm going to go out on a limb here. Bjark Ingels inspires no one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that'll be the poll quote that we used for this episode. I've actually... So of all of the alumni interviews I did for school... For incoming freshmen, not a single one named B.R. Kingles is their favorite architect. Well, that's inspiring. That, <laughs> optimistic. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, my biggest problem all the time with all this is that once I went to architecture school and went through that process, and in the program that we had at the University of Oregon, it's very much focused on the experience of the human. Mm-hmm. Like you're building this building for a human mm-hmm. or many humans yeah. to inhabit it. And that matters. And the human experience is everything. 
And now that I don't design spaces anymore, mm-hmm. still everything I do is human-centric design. It's all about the human experience and how we interact with anything that I design. That's the most fundamental thing is how is the human interaction going to be with this thing, yeah. right? And so the idea that there would be some lauded famous architect out there who's designing something that if you actually look at it from the mm-hmm. experience of the humans that are inside of it, doesn't work for them, then that's like the biggest sin that you can have. I agree. It needs to be both, especially when you have unlimited funds and clients. Yeah, if that, you're a good designer, yeah. there's no reason that you can't build something amazingly monumental that will go down in the millennia and be here for a thousand years, mm-hmm. four thousand years, five thousand years, yep. whatever. You can design for humans and be monumental. You just have to be good at what you do. I couldn't agree more. You have to care about people besides your own ego. I couldn't agree more. So I mentioned before that I was asking a bunch of people to be guests on this particular episode. Got turned down a bunch of times. Like, what prodded me to just go do it with you and me was a Dezine article. So Dezine is like a, a very popular design industry webpage that has articles and blogs. A couple of weeks ago, they wrote an article written by a single person about Bjark Engel's quote unquote like design philosophy. <laughs> and I was reading it and I was basically just confused the whole article. Like I read it all because I felt like it was my duty to and then I ignored it. And I go to Dezine every <laughs> couple days. The very next week, Dezine published a follow-up article about that article that was simply a collection of 30 or 40 comments written by other designers. <gasps> And not a single one was positive. I mean, positive in terms of Bjark Ingels having a philosophy. Uh But it was all just like, no, literally Bjark Ingels is the anti-movement. He has no movement. Yes. Even the photo that was... It is so accountable of them for doing that. Yeah. The image that they used for the article is like this flat facade. And it literally just has a bunch of pointy floors sticking out of it. Triangular, (laughs) random balconies Mm. just jutting out of it in every direction. The comments were amazing, better takedowns that I could possibly do. (laughs) You know, I like to say that I would rather an architect, excuse the pun, like go big and fail rather than, (laughs) you know, make a small move. But he seems to just celebrate doing whatever Mm -hmm. that will get it shared on social media, that will get him more attention just to keep the media machine rolling. And like eventually this is going to have a real cost in our profession. Yeah. And also I think part of what I was thinking about is that it's become something different. When you get to the point that what you're doing is this marketing machine for your Stargatech business, it's like you've gone down a path to a certain point where what you have to do to keep that rolling is to just keep pushing, go further, do these things. You've gone down a path that it's really, I don't really know how you come back from it once you're on it. Mm-hmm. Like you've made that choice and that's what you're doing. Let's go hypothetical for a second. If you were to have some sort of come to Jesus moment and be like, oh my God, I've been harming all the future generations that are going to inhabit these spaces that I built and I have just realized the error of my ways mm-hmm. and then shifted and somehow righted that ship, that would be so monumental in of itself I mean, that would actually be the things that like movies are made of. Like it would be an entirely different thing that you could market. But the chance that you could do that successfully is so tiny. Mm -hmm. It's like one in a million. Because when you're on that path, that profit is rolling and you're not going to get off it. Right. No, yeah. You're just going to continue to do harm. Right. He can't. Yeah. No, you just you just keep doing that harm. Yeah. But it's amazing. Some architects have gone that route, but still managed to do important work simultaneously because at one time they had important work. He just skipped all the way to the part where he was doing BS for money. 
Famous architects like Richard Meyer and Raphael Vignoli started out doing buildings that made a statement, changed the way we all design in some small way. And then later in their careers, they started just cranking out stuff that aesthetically mimicked the other stuff they did and charged a lot of money for it. All right. So Richard Meyer, at least, did do single-family homes, mm-hmm. right? So what is Bjarke Ingels past? Did he ever do single-family homes he as was, a viable no, he business for, for a while? He worked for Rem Koolhaas. Okay, so that's an interesting thing there, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're building a house for somebody, even if it's a architect house, still, you literally have to think about one or two or three or four or five, whatever people live in this house. There mm-hmm. are some human needs that you are yep. forced to engage with. It's a lot easier to neglect or ignore or minimize the needs of the humans if you're dealing with on a much bigger scale. Yeah, but Rem did. Rem Koolhaas, another famous architect, whom I'm a huge fan of, actually. He did start out doing residential, but I don't know what projects Jarek Ingalls did while he was at OMA, which is Rem Koolhaas's firm. It'd be so fascinating to force architects to design like a 2,000 square foot single family house. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Go. <laughs> and, you know, I know, the, you know, not everybody listening to our show is an architect or a designer. So I'm trying to think of a parallel. It's like if you are a lawyer and there was the most famous lawyer in the world was <laughs> lawyering based on his writing for law and order. <laughs> Or like any way that you present any profession in pop culture. Like Mm -hmm. I think we can think of it in that way. Lawyer shows, doctor shows, you know, shows with cops and firemen. Right. It is not as dramatic in real life to do those jobs as we make it seem on TV. Right. Very, very true. It's a challenge of a creative profession, a profession where you are salaried and you serve the public and it's a service. But yet, inspiration and art is a part of it. Or like if you tried to go back to the lawyer thing, where say you wrote some landmark case, mm-hmm. some famous case, you argued in front of the Supreme Court and you won it and it was like all over the press everywhere. And then you decided, hey, that was wildly successful. <laughs> I am now going to use that for every single future client that I have. Right. Yeah. Hey, that worked. Made me a bunch of big bucks. Uh-huh. It was good. And I'm just going to apply that. It doesn't really matter about the specifics of this new client, like whatever this worked before. And I got really famous for it. So I'm going to keep yeah. doing it. In a way, maybe Bjark Ingels is the best thing to happen to other celebrity architects <laughs> because they all seem, like I said, many of them, including a few here in the Pacific Northwest, they have their faults, but they believe in something and they have a thing that they do. And the thing that they do ended up getting them attention, but mm-hmm. they did it because they loved it and it was their thing. Whereas Bjark Ingels just loved getting attention. It was just like, what can I do to get attention? <laughs> the closest corollary I can think of, because there was another famous architect who got attention similar to this, whose name was Frank Gehry, who was very famous. <laughs> Never heard of him. Not everybody has. Not everybody oh. has. Frank Gehry also had, I mean, you can say what you want about his process. It did get attention, but it wasn't about getting attention. And his early work was not flashy. And was rooted in something. I'm trying to find the something behind the nothing. Okay, well, and Gary is interesting wondering that because probably that name more than VR Gangles is known to the general public, right? Very true. And everybody associates him with those buildings that are, you know, like the Disney Concert Hall in LA. And mm-hmm. and I don't remember what the documentary was that I saw, and I don't know whether or not I trust it. But mm-hmm. it was one of those ones that looked at that and it had an interview with him and you know, we can choose to believe him or not. But it got at that idea that he didn't necessarily mean to be doing that. 
but he made that building, the one in Bilbao, mm-hmm. the first one in that style, right? Or at least the first one that gained a lot of attention. No, it was the first of many, many things. Like, and then people were like, I want that. He was doing I things that no one that. had ever done before. It didn't matter anymore that he didn't really feel like doing it necessarily. It was that people were coming to pay him to do mm-hmm. specifically that. And so it was almost like a trap that he set for himself. Yeah. And then he a- had to keep going down that path. No, the design story behind Gary's Guggenheim Bilbao is fascinating. So he was already wealthy by the time that commission came around. And he's always looking for new materials and new things. A few years before he got the commission, the price of titanium plummeted. And he bought a ton of it and just put it in a warehouse. And he was like, oh, one of these days I'm going to use this titanium because it's so cheap. (laughs) And so he was looking for an opportunity to use the material. And then that commission came around. He got the commission. At the same time, he had become fascinated with the geometry of hairstyles. And he went to like the Vidal Sassoon headquarters and started, (laughs) I swear to God, taking calipers and measuring the geometry of hairstyles and had them modeled in 3D. And the Bilbao (laughs) Guggenheim is literally a couple of wire-framed hairstyle geometries glued together and built out of titanium. Oh, my God. (laughs) that's hilarious and it got tons Uh. of attention but he wasn't like oh i'll buy all this titanium and it'll get me attention Mm -hmm. he was like oh i'm fascinated by new materials i want to work with new materials and then oh i have a fascination with the geometry of hairstyles it became a thing that got attention well and it wouldn't probably have gotten the attention if it was like oh this is the architecture of hairstyles like Mm -hmm. that wouldn't have sold nor does he stand next to the building telling everyone it's about hairstyles no because that wouldn't work you can walk into that building philip johnson who's another very famous architect less than a year before he passed away i think he walked into that museum as one of the first visitors that got to see it and he broke down into tears. He'd never seen anything like it and he was moved by it. And the story didn't matter. Yeah. It just inspired people. Creative people will understand that, that the story of how you get to what the final design is does matter to a degree, Mm -hmm. right? The story mattered because that's how you got there, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily explain where you ended up. So it's like the journey needed to happen to get there, but Mm -hmm. the journey doesn't have to reveal the end product. I would agree with that too. So I'm trying to hold myself accountable for my criticism. Bring it back to Bjark Ingels for a second. So Mm -hmm. are we saying the journey doesn't matter? The journey journey does does matter, matter, but well, yeah, you're right. We're saying both. Mm -hmm. I guess what we're saying is that obviously the design process is everything. Mm -hmm. That journey matters, but you don't necessarily have to reveal that journey. Right. How you got there is often quite messy and quite circuitous. You make a lot of bad decisions and you come around Mm -hmm. and and that's part of the process. But when it comes to the point that you've reached the end and now you're talking about narrating that story. Right. I would say it this way. If you have to rely on the process and the story to make your design quote unquote good, you failed. Right. If you're like, oof, look at this POS. And then you're like, yes, but look at this fascinating journey I got to get there. You failed. You ended up in a bad place. So that, some it doesn't of that make is like it better. the 2020 hindsight thing. Right. right. So you can have a bad story or a good story, but I would argue that no story you failed. If you have no story, you failed. Mm-hmm. Even if you made up the story. If you after were like, fact. I just glued together a bunch of things because I thought people would take photographs of it. And it looks cool. Yeah. Oh my God, I just glued these things together. <laughs> it looks right. really cool. And yeah, I think attention getting, <laughs> you know, spending billions of dollars to get attention. Yeah. Like building a building is something that's harrowing the world. It involves 
sometimes tens of thousands of people, depending on the scale of the building, Mm -hmm. even a very small building, those in the industry know this, outside of the industry you don't, even a small building, let's say like a house, involves minimum 50 people that touch it in some way. And that's a really small amount. Something like a small apartment building that's even five floors, you're talking in the neighborhood of a thousand people. And so for something the scale, like Bjark Ingels is working on a giant tower, these are tens of thousands of people. Not to mention the materials extracts from the earth and the energy it takes from the planet. Like there's a major responsibility you have to make something worthwhile. I feel like if you start and end that journey in five minutes and you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to glue a bunch of stuff together that somebody will want to take a photograph of, that's irresponsible. Yeah. I'm fascinated by this now because it's hard to pin down. Both of us have a bunch of design training both mm-hmm. academically, but also in the profession. In yeah. the profession. Mm-hmm. And those processes are very different from what we train for and what you end up doing. Right. So then this idea, though, that trying to codify the value of the story of the process, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if some of it is that there is like a disconnect in between how we want to tell the story of how we got to the end result of the design and how we literally did get there. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times how we got there is somewhat messy. It's not, oh, it's not at line, all linear and, and, it, and right. it probably should not be. Well, and that's the Gary story is really tantamount to that. It's like it's not a direct line. He didn't know he was headed somewhere. Yeah, but the public thinks that it should be a direct line. Right. Whereas people that have design training or experience in design understand that it's more of like a spiraling loop. You circle right. around, you come back, you iterate. It's not like a train going to the destination. Right. You're circling around, you're coming back, and that is a good thing. Yeah, and so you and I, as architects and designers, we serve clients, and our clients aren't the type of clients that a celebrity architect have. They don't just, like, say, oh, you know, contact me in six months when you design something spectacular. Mm -hmm. They have specific wants and needs, which are really reasonable. Mm -hmm. They want something that reflects how they live or how they work or how they run their business. We also, at the same time, are expected, and rightfully so, to create something beautiful and interesting worth making. Our clients understandably make the same assumptions about us as they make about Bjark Ingels, the architects that they encounter in popular culture. And they are inherently worried, for good reason, that we are going to just make something to get attention not care about their wants and needs or budget just to feed our own ego because that's what they see. And that's an understandable leap of logic. It reminds me of a story from my previous architecture firm. We were working on a project. I didn't work on it, but it was a multifamily building and it had some retail and it was in Virginia and it was near the shoreline. It looked out onto the water. It wasn't in a huge city, a small-ish town, but The town was very active and very interested in the design process. And we took great care in the design and it was modern. And we paid a lot of attention to the context and to our clients' needs and designed a building that was modern and abstract, but I thought very beautiful. But let's take that out of it. We definitely paid a lot of attention to the context. When the design was released to the public, there was this massive backlash to the building and a bunch of uh, people had written into the local newspaper. And it was, this is everything wrong with architecture. And this is everything wrong with architects. And it was basically, we could do nothing right unless we just reproduced something else in that town. And if you do anything else, you are just this popular version of the architect 
that and all of these assumptions clearly came from movies and TV and film and architects like Bjark Ingels mm-hmm. who are like clearly architects don't care this is just another example of what we already definitely know about architect and designers and it's really frustrating because we have this huge hurdle to jump right away do you think that to a certain degree that's unavoidable because it's so public I mean, if we go back to the, we're talking about other professions like doctors, lawyers, and stuff, Mm -hmm. you develop some brand new procedure that saves lives. Mm -hmm. Until that gets into the press, like nobody's going to be walking by the hospital and be like, oh my God, that guy is in there saving lives with this procedure. And I don't know if I really agree with it. Or that lawyer, she's kicking ass in there and arguing this court case. But you know what? I don't agree with that. It's it's not as public. No, that's 100% true. There aren't many architects that get attention for solving massive problems in the world, which is sad because there are like hundreds of architects out there literally doing that as we speak. So those are probably architects that are skipping the, this is just a guess here, (laughs) skipping the client and going to the user. It's possible. So for example, where does the responsibility lie? Say you're a star architect and a client has hired you. I mean, technically, you have to do what the client wants, even... First of all, oh my God, I'm so rich. This is so nice. Yeah, all of a sudden... This beautiful $5,000 shirt I have on. (laughs) Oh, it's so smooth and silky. Yeah, I mean, it paid for itself. That's right, my eight houses. This is fantastic. Thank you, first of all, for making me a architect. I'm enjoying this experience so far. I mean, the air is just clearer up there, right? Oh, God, yeah. Like up there in the... Yeah, and I'm amazing. Amongst the stars. I'm simply amazing. Everything is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm getting tan just sitting next to you. Yeah. Doesn't it feel good just being around me? Yeah. (laughs) I realize that when you're in that position and a client hires you, that your responsibility, the way our industry is structured, your responsibility is to the client. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. It's not like your responsibility is to the people that are going to live in that building. It's to who's paying the bills for designing the building. If it's private, if it's a public building, it's a little different. Because the people who are hiring you are representatives of the public, in which case your client is the public. It makes it a little tricky. Yeah, and it it does get complicated, too, because if we say it's a museum, Mm -hmm. whoever is building the museum has... But it's it's to their advantage that people are going to enjoy being there because more people will come and Mm -hmm. stay longer and maybe visit the gift shop or whatever, right? And that benefits the art. But if you're building something that's some big multifamily building where the developer doesn't necessarily care that people are long-term residents, they just care that, in fact, maybe they care that they're short-term residents, they can raise the rents more often. That's also possible. Right? I mean, so maybe you're actually being hired to do something that will prevent people from wanting to stay long-term. Also possible. Like back Mm -hmm. in the day when companies like McDonald's were literally designing their restaurants so that people wouldn't linger. Mm-hmm. They've shifted that now, apparently. There was a previous intention that the goal was to keep people moving, get mm-hmm. them out of there. And I could see how that would be the case with some business plans for multifamily buildings is like, don't let anybody stay more than a couple of years so that you can make sure that you right. keep raising the rents. Right. And so then as a designer, as the architect for that building, is it therefore your prerogative to make sure that you make it just good enough to get people in the door? But once they realize that it's really terrible to actually live in this space, mm-hmm. that it looks cool from the outside. Once you're there, after a couple of years, you're like, I got to find somewhere yep. else. And you're therefore serving the client, but you're not serving the user. I'm going to take the opportunity to plug my favorite architect, who is Antoine Predock. Antoine Predock is an architect based out of New Mexico. 
And he's like in his twilight years. Like he's retired now and he just like posts social media and pictures of his bike and his wife. And like just, (laughs) he just hangs out and he's donated all of his stuff to local universities. Like he's at the end of the road and he was very, very famous, did really, really well. But he chose all kinds of different programs to take on and all kinds of public buildings. And all of his buildings, some of them were absolutely fantastical, but all of them were based on respecting the environment. And he did elementary schools and town halls and civic buildings. He also did a couple casinos and a couple of single family homes. And he didn't just choose the route of making stuff to make stuff. I'm segueing randomly today. I read an article about sustainability recently. And it was out following the Green New Deal Mm -hmm. about what really causes the greatest carbon footprint. And it's not any of the things we thought it was. I think all of us think about airplane fuel or cars or shipping, but it's actually making stuff more than anything else. The making of stuff is like five times worse for the planet than all the driving in the world. We don't often talk about that as an industry. Like the waste of making a thing Mm -hmm. should go somewhere. Well, and the waste of the architectural and construction industry is huge. I wonder if maybe when you get that famous, you have a responsibility to choose your projects more carefully. Because as we're talking all the and distilling it out into private and public, isn't that interesting? It's like if you choose to do more public buildings, your client becomes literally the people of the world. But I mean, that's just based on your personal morality. Yeah. You could just be You can just make a boatload you know, of an cash, evil sure. mastermind and be like, No, mm-hmm. I'm here to destroy the world. I right. don't care. It doesn't do our profession any help. No. But if you're thinking that way already, you don't care about doing help to the profession. <laughs> right. You are that's your true. own. That's true. <laughs> oh, so that proves Bjark Ingles is evil. <laughs> you just you literally just proved it. <laughs> He does look like he'd be a good Bond villain. He'd be a great Bond villain. Right. He'd be a great Bond good villain. Good alternate career. Yeah. You could just retire. If you're listening to the show and you're not a designer, I encourage you to go on Netflix, search for him, and watch the interview and decide that he did like part of a whole episode of a documentary series on there, the name of which I forget, which is not super <laughs> helpful. I apologize. But it won't be hard to come up with in search results. You know, decide for yourself. Maybe I'm being ridiculous. And that is completely possible. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I can be ridiculous. But I don't know. I feel like everything he does day after day proves my point over and over and over again. Well, and then tell us what you think. Yeah. Let us know. Shoot us an email. Charles at boredomvellum.com. Rachel at boredomvellum.com. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was very tempted for just a minute to give out my cell phone number. No. Because, but it's like, because I know like one day, like lots and lots and lots of people will listen to the show and then my cell phone number will be in the world and I'll mm. have to change it. And I still have a 917 from Brooklyn and I don't want to give that up. Mm. So if you want to call Charles. <laughs> well, you know the area code now. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I'm definitely not the last authority on this. And a lot of the people that I asked to do this show probably have more authority to speak on it. And I kind of want to come back to that, that people in the profession are afraid to have these conversations. Several times even during recording this show, I'm thinking like, wow, like this is not stuff that people want out there. No one wants to block the, in my opinion, secretly no one wants to block their path to becoming Bjark Ingalls. But I feel like we should be talking about that as not a good place to end up. Oh, I agree. And I'm wondering, is that unique to the profession or not? Yeah, I don't know. Because probably not. I'm just like shooting from the hip here. I don't really know. But it does seem like in professions, there are people that get to some level of major public awareness and celebrity level. 
Because I don't know if it's really that people necessarily are afraid that it will prevent them from getting there. Because anybody that thinks about it so negatively doesn't necessarily want to get there, mm-hmm. right? Or it they're just being wh- bitter. Where does it come from? Does it come from jealousy? Or does it come from resentment at how the profession is being held back from doing its best work? Yeah. If you genuinely think that it's being harmful to the profession, why wouldn't you speak out? Yeah. So if there's a reason that you're holding back, I suppose it could be any number of things, but that they could include a fear of closing that path off, a secret want to be a star architect, and so then therefore you don't want to offend the people that would help get you to that right, place. Right, And that if it happened to you, you might secretly hate yourself, but you would relish that you're now a gajillionaire. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like, are you going to be closing doors or opening doors by making a statement like that? And how much do you care about helping bring the public perception of the industry to a better place? And how much are you willing to risk of your own theoretical trajectory to change that course? Personally, I want to see more beautiful, thoughtful architecture in the world. And Bjark Ingels ensures that we will see less beautiful, thoughtful architecture in the world, period, Mm -hmm. in my humble opinion. And if somebody was like, hey, Charles, here's a billion dollars. I'm now your patron. I don't care. Do stuff that will get me attention at all costs. Make something that will make the stars shine. But then I would Would have the power. Would you do it? Would you be like, no thanks? But I would have (laughs) the power to do both. I would have the power to serve the earth and people and my client and consider that my job. Only if the client was like, I care about that. Don't have to tell the the client the the story about it. I want you to harm everything. Well, no, I think that, I that is an ethical decision. I am not going to fund decision. this project yeah. unless you do these things. No, and I, the money that is funding this project came from things that you consider to be unethical. I would not take that project, even if it was a billion dollars. Well, there you go. I mean, I've not taken those jobs before because that's not the work I wanted to do. That's not why. I mean, you For sacrifice. A billion dollars. Yeah, you sacrifice a lot. Any Anyone <laughs> in the architecture industry will tell you this. You sacrifice a lot to become an architect. Mm-hmm. And you sacrifice a lot in terms of money, in terms of time, and in terms of education education, the things you could do and the money you could make with the same amount of time and money and education besides architecture are many mm-hmm. and extremely lucrative. So do you think that's why people end up caught into that star architect path? Because you don't make they the choice the to become an architect to make money. That's not right. the path. Mm-hmm. Becoming an architect is not how you make money. No, But so if you've, you've already made those sacrifices and then you became an architect and you're struggling and you're going through and it's rough. And then all of a sudden, a path opens where suddenly you might be the unique case that makes a bunch of money. How much harder is it to say no? I personally don't think it's that much harder. (laughs) I don't know. But that's a personal thing. That's how I personally feel. And every designer might have to make that decision at some (laughs) point in their life. I hear a lot of my contemporaries talk a lot about the name on the door and the prestige of where they work. Mm -hmm. And for a short period of time, that mattered to me in my career. But I learned a lesson During that time, Mm -hmm. when I was at a prominent firm, after many years there, I looked back at the time I'd spent there and the quality of my life, and I changed as a person Mm -hmm. after reflecting on it. And I guess not everybody has moments like that. I don't know. Well, I have to ask the, more people, but the moment in your life that you have to make yeah. that call, right. there are so many variables. 100% true. The well, very same person might not make the same call. If that and I'm not trying to make myself out to be some hero. It's not like I you're like, not, I in fact did turn no, yeah, down a billion right. dollar contract. Um, when, when I was offered a Guggenheim Museum, I, I said, specifically, no, thank you. That's right, I said, not unless we're going to be saving the planet. <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Guggenheim. No, no. I'm not making myself to be some hero. 
I'm just reflecting a lot of what we hear in our industry from our peers, which sadly remains behind this weird veil, which it really shouldn't remain. If you are a designer and you listen to our podcast, I would encourage you to have more conversations like this in public. Talk about our profession. Mm -hmm. Don't be scared that you're going to somehow cheat yourself out of a successful future through criticizing your peers. It's not the case. We are just about out of time. Rachel, thank you for (laughs) going on this endeavor with me. (laughs) Hopefully somebody out there will agree to have the conversation with us. Yeah. And thank you very much for listening. Check out Design Goggles Podcast on Instagram and Design Goggles on Facebook and Twitter. Also check out our blog on boredandvellum.com. There's always super cool stuff being posted there. And as always, please stop on by Board and Vellum in Seattle anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we will see you all in a few weeks.